fresh from the pod. I'm Tamsin Westhorpe, garden writer and gardener. In this episode, I meet Joe Ruxton, founder of PlasticOceans.uk and director of the very moving and very important film, A Plastic Ocean. She will encourage you to look upon your garden waste in a very different way. So leave the shed well alone until you've listened to our conversation. Joe, how lovely to meet you. Lovely to meet you too. And I'm really glad we're meeting on dry land because <laughs> I'm I, not. I do not have sea legs. <laughs> I take it you do. I do. I feel so at peace on the ocean. It's it's just it's where I replenish my spirit. What, whatever the weather. Oh yes, absolutely. Whatever the weather. Oh, you brave woman, far <laughs> braver than me. That's why I'm a gardener. Now, many people will think, Tamsin, why are you interviewing Joe? Um, she's a woman of the ocean, and you're a woman of the land. But I feel passionately, especially in winter, that gardeners are clearing out their sheds, they're getting rid of their plastic pots, their compost bags. And your campaign to save the oceans is relevant to every single one of us, isn't it? So I want to bring that message to the fore. It's interesting because for a lot of people, nature seems to stop at the high water mark. They see the sea as a separate entity. But we are so connected by the ocean. And when it comes to the plastics problem, the oceans are the final casualty because plastic will find its way into the watercourses, whether it's gone down a drain or it's blown onto, onto the street, it will eventually end up in a river or a canal and it washes out into the ocean. 80% of plastic in the ocean has come directly from the land. So it, it's, it's not only that that we need to consider, but I think a lot of people don't realise that the ocean is absolutely our life support system. Mm. You take two breaths, doesn't matter if you're in the middle of Australia or America, that second breath has come from the ocean. People think that the forests are the lungs of the planet. The ocean provides more than half the oxygen we breathe. And isn't it 70% of of the world is ocean? Exactly. Why aren't we planet ocean? Yeah, quite right. Mm. So, When it comes to gardening, we're an industry that love nature. Mm. We love our environment. We're all about creating wonderful environments. But we are guilty, as are many industries, of using an awful lot of plastic. Last year, I was thrilled to see, after Chelsea Flower Show, I went around Chelsea in Bloom, and they'd got the theme of Under the Ocean. Mm. And there were some amazing art pieces and flowers, and, and that really brought it to the fore. And I've read that you're really keen on people creating art from wasted plastic, aren't you? Well, I think any way that you can get the message out is really a good thing. And art can be an amazing way to look at it. Quite often when I'm visiting schools, I ask the children to bring in all of the plastic that their family would have thrown away that week. And that's quite a lesson in itself when they come in with these big boxes or bags Mm. of plastic. And then we start to do the creative work. But I talk to them first. I tell them the stories about the things that I've witnessed when we were filming and how the animals are suffering. And it goes through so fast. They just pick up on it. And then the things they create from submarines, they're going to clean it all up or they'll out of a plastic bottle, they'll suddenly, there'll be bags on the side of it to create wings and they've created an albatross chick. And then they're putting all little bits and pieces of plastic in its stomach. So there is something that, looks like a bird, 
It looks colourful, yeah. but it's actually full of plastic. They then tell people about it and they become ambassadors, and, and the message as any works. artist would, yes. And, and the message can be really strong. Plus, they've suddenly realised just how much they're throwing away. And of course, with plastic, there is no away because mm. plastic was designed not to go away. That's why it's such a great product. But the idea of using it for single-use items is just ridiculous because you can't get rid of it. There is nowhere for it to go. No, you can burn it, but then you've got the problem with dioxins and furans mm. that go into the atmosphere. A lot of the time it just gets landfilled. There's things that can be done with it. There's incredible new technology now, but uh, at the moment, most of our, our plastic just gets left. So explain to me how you got involved with this. Has your childhood revolved around the ocean, or is this something that's sort of happened to you later in life, this passion? No, I've, I've always loved the sea always and my earliest memories are beaches in Cornwall and you know sitting feet in rock pools looking at things in there with my sister and you know gathering shells and Lovely. making sandcastles it was always the beach and uh, we then went to live in Singapore when I was seven and that was the first of well seven islands that I've actually lived on that is counting oh this gosh one. so that's very inspiring yeah in, in yeah five different countries seven islands so I've always been it's funny because when I'm away from the ocean I kind of get an unease, you know, I, I went to Delhi and had a wonderful time at a friend's wedding, but I just, there was this unease and I thought it's because I'm not close to the sea and I felt the same when I was in Nepal. Mm. It's just something about it that it, it's, you know, I'm, I'm so associated with it and probably it came from that childhood of, I mean, in Singapore in, in those days, because I'm exceptionally old, um, you could just drive across the causeway into Malaysia, it was one country, you didn't have to go through uh, customs and immigration so we were always up on the beaches in in the uh, western and it, it's such freedom for children isn't yes. it to be be by the sea oh it's lovely i mean i've got four granddaughters now in in cornwall just near me and, and we're always meeting up on the beach so the fact that our oceans are a place of plastic sadly does that put you off taking to the grandchildren to the beach should people be put off should people be worried about you know, people will say, oh, should, should the children swim in the sea? Have we got to that stage yet? It depends where you go. I'd say in, in the UK, we're lucky. The other thing is people are very aware in this country and there are a lot of people who are out cleaning beaches. Mm. I mean, they, they tend to miss the microplastics, which unfortunately I notice. But I think the beaches are still a beautiful place to go. I'd like to think that it's still safe to eat seafood. Yeah. But there are beaches certainly that we went to, in fact, entire islands when we were filming, where people are just drowning in plastic waste. What and was what the I, name of the island? In Tuva your... Tuvalu was yes. the one in the film. And it, it was interesting, the feeling I had there, because the, we were working with a family group, probably about 30 people, and the little kids were following us around and, and just sort of skipping over the tops of all this plastic that was fly-ridden. It, it, it just... It was like having this strange premonition mm. that I was looking into the future of the whole planet. Yeah. If we don't get our act together, and those this is kids have got sort at. of used to that, haven't they? they when, have. when you watch them in your documentary, you think this is normal for it them. Is. Sadly, yes, and and in a way, we're getting used to it. You know, I think that I, I, having done a lot of travelling, you know, as I was growing up as well. You were used to certain places, I guess, in, in developing countries where you expected to see plastic strewn across mm. the street and, and blocking the drains and that kind of thing. But it's gradually happening. It's creeping up on us wherever we go. Mm. And now, in a sad situation, I'm driving along and I am looking in the 
hedgerows and seeing all the plastic. Yeah, I must admit, I, I live in rural Herefordshire mm. and my sister and I litter pick around where we live. And over the last few years, it's got worse. Yeah. It, it's unbelievable. It, it, is, it is bottles. A, bo- a lot of it's bottles. Yeah, yes. but of course, that with these high rainfalls we're having mm. end up in our stream, then they end up in the river. Yes. And then they end up in the sea. And why are we drinking water out of bottles when we can turn on the tap? That's an interesting one, actually. And it's one that really came home to me when we were in Tuvalu because we were, the crew was stuck. There's two flights a week that come into their, mm. uh, their airport, their landing strip, and they come from Fiji. And there was a big cyclone in Fiji, so the plane couldn't get out. So the, the crew were, were stranded there for about 10 days. Got back to Fiji and the, Flooding was so bad that the groundwater was contaminated and a lot of people were falling sick. Meanwhile, the Fiji aquifer was off limits to the people there. And the water from the aquifer was put into the Fiji plastic bottles. I don't know if you've seen the square bottles with a little pink hibiscus. It's one of the most prized bottled waters in the States. They will pay $4 a bottle for this. Goodness me. (laughs) So it's taken from this aquifer where the local people can't get clean water. It's put on the dock side where there'll be hot sunshine pushing all those chemicals into the water, it'll then get transported 6,000 miles. It then will go on a supermarket shelf or in a warehouse. And maybe a year later, somebody will drink that water when they could have crossed their kitchen and turned the tap on. And I think that any country where you've got clean water coming out of the taps, there should be a ban on bottled water. Mm. How did we manage before? Well, we had water fountains or we filled our bottles and took them with us. Or we asked for water when we went to restaurant. It is interesting, (coughs) travelling on the train today. um, Don't me. Well, there were more people, but of a certain generation, a younger generation, that had bought their own flasks or drinkers, Mm. which I thought was good to see. Mm. Um, But we have got accustomed to leaving our home and just think, oh, well, I'll buy it on the way. You know, no one seems to make sandwiches anymore or take food with them, do they? Exactly. it's, it's It's wasteful, it's expensive. But what it's doing to the planet is is just unforgivable. The, the reason that we have water in bottles anyway was because, and I remember this happening, there was all this news about how many teaspoons of sugar are in carbonated drinks. Yeah. And their sales plateaued, which is never a good thing. So some bright sparks said, well, I'll tell you what, we'll bottle water. And everyone's <laughs> going, yeah, right, well, you know, you laugh now. And they said, no, we will tell people that it's more healthy. And then we'll get some celebrities to run around and, you know, in their track suits with mm. their bottled water. And we were hooked. And I'm just as guilty. I've bought bottled water without thinking about it. I think it. that's, th- we're all guilty, aren't yes. we? Nobody is oh, you not can't guilty. Point the finger at anyone. No. The point is, once you know, then there's no excuse. Mm. You think about it now. There's no way I would go and buy bottled water now. No way at all. I actually don't like the smell of chlorine in, in tap water. I'll put up with it, but I, I just filter it at home. Mm. Just the thought of it, to me, it's just ridiculous. I think that's the, the first one that needs to come into law. Or if people are holding events or you've got people joining the office, you just make a point and say, we do not have You're not welcome water bottles. Yeah. Water bottle. So going back to your incredible documentary, <laughs> A Plastic Ocean, I mean, honestly, that was life-changing for you, wasn't it? How How did you... Because you've been a BBC producer mm. and you've done a lot of underwater filming for Blue Planet, etc. Yes. What made you make the jump to making your own film? Before I worked for the BBC, I worked for WWF. Mm-hmm. I was based in Hong Kong. 
And I started their marine program there and got the first marine parks set up and uh, was, was part of that process. And um, I think marine conservation was always my passion. I was a very keen diver. And um, when I went to work on Blue Planet at the time, we were going to have a six-part series that would have gone out at the same time on BBC Two, right. showing the other side of the problem. And the series producer, Alistair Fothergill, actually asked me what I thought the main issues were, because I literally come from the, the coal phase. And I said, well, definitely it's got to be, um, it's got to include overfishing, um, including bycatch and illegal fishing, mm -hmm. coastal development, um, pollution, you know, sort of listed these things. The Blue Planet series was co-funded by um, Discovery. And the idea was put to Discovery that we would do this series at the same time, because obviously we were going to see the other side of it when we were filming. And the response that he got, which all my American friends get very cross about, was, oh, no, we're not going to fund that. Americans aren't interested in conservation. <laughs> and, oh, dear. <laughs> I mean, and the, the point is, if people don't know about it, how can they care? It's like me drinking water out of a plastic bottle. Yeah. I didn't, didn't know about it, didn't think about the consequences. I would never do it now. So to me, it's like, let, let's give them the credit. Let's tell people. But I was at BBC for 12 years and always wanted to get a conservation story or message in at the end. And I did uh, a few shark films and always wanted something to go in there about decimation of shark populations. So they are down by 90%. About the thinning, you know, as top, we need top predators. If you don't have the top predators, the next generation that they would predate upon will proliferate everything and then everything below that goes. You've got to have them. And I wanted to get that message in. And every time it was taken out at the last stage, it's, oh, you know, people just want to be entertained. They, they, they don't want to know the bad news. If they don't want to know bad news, how come they'll watch the news program two or three times a day? Because you don't get much good news on that. Very true. <laughs> and, you know, give them the credit. Let them be educated and see how they react. Now, when we were filming Blue Planet 1, we were off the uh, coast of southern Spain doing a pilot whale shoot. And it was very windy there. And it's where there's all the polytunnels growing our winter salads. Because it's so windy massive swathes of polythene were blowing into the straits there. And we were getting our legs tangled up in it. And we were right, you know, pilot whales, are, they come right up to you. They're very inquisitive whales. And I thought, this is this is a story we need to tell. Mm. But it was always the same. You know, I've, I've worked with a cameraman who, who'd come back from a turtle shoot. They spent two hours clearing the beach of plastic so that the camera couldn't see any of that within its So you're lying size. to the viewer, really, aren't you, and saying this is this exactly. beautiful sea. Why show them our oceans as if they're <clears throat> full of life? Why show them as if they're pristine? Because they're not. And if we think that, that if that's how we perceive them to be, we'll continue to throw our trash into them, to pollute them, mm. to take all of the fish and living things out of them, because we think it's all fine, and that's wrong. Now, with our film, I did take the idea to BBC, but was told that, Nobody would watch it, um, which is interesting. And then when Blue Planet 2 came out, um, plastic wasn't originally in it, but David Attenborough had gone to one of the screenings of The Rough Cut, and he, he actually said to them, why aren't you covering plastic? Haven't you seen Joe Ruxton's film? And then they put it in. Can you imagine if we put something about plastic in him 20 years ago when Blue Planet 1 came oh, out? Oh, gosh, the impact. We might have had this effect then. You know, everyone talks about the Blue Planet effect. We could have had it 20 years ago. I mean, it's never too late to do something. Don't get me wrong. 
But what I've witnessed in the last 20 years, how plastic has proliferated, how our plastic use, this, this single use convenient lifestyle, which is so ridiculous, maybe that would never have happened. Gosh. So your film took you how long to create? Eight years. Eight years? Yes. So it that's meant to. totally dedicate, I mean, dedication. Well, it's dedication because I was so determined. There's many reasons why it took that long. Firstly, it's very hard to raise funds. I decided to leave the BBC and as soon as I did and stopped getting that monthly salary and the world plummeted Terrifying. into global recession. Oh. Um, and so <clears throat> trying to get money out of people when the world, when the planet's in mm. that sort of state was difficult. So it took two years before I raised, had enough to do the first shoot. And, and that was just the research and everything else. I hadn't even brought other teams in to do the filming and it was a case of raise the funds, right, we'll get another shoot done. And even that, sometimes we were really close to the wire with boats on hold and all of this, just can we get the funds in? Um, so it was, it was a, a long and difficult process. I also, I kept learning new things on the way. I kept learning other stories and learning more about plastic. I didn't know when I started this that there was any link to human health. That, to me, took it to another yeah. level. People that care about the oceans and <clears throat> would watch films like Blue Planet would probably have watched it. But we needed to get to the sort of people that wouldn't watch it. Didn't so care. It, when you mention human health, it's basically the plastic is ending up in our food chain, isn't it? Well, it's not so much that. It's, it's actually a little bit more complicated than that, because if you think about it, you don't eat the guts of a fish. But what I learned about plastic and, and other studies that have come out even since then is from the day plastic enters the marine environment, it acts like a magnet to hazardous chemicals that are there. And these chemicals have come from years of agricultural runoff and industrial runoff. Mm -hmm. So you think of all the chemicals we put on the land, you know, all of these non-biological pesticides and herbicides and, and all of that that's been washing in there. And then think of all the heavy metals and things coming from industry. They are all there. They don't like water. The one thing they love is plastic and oh, they, they gosh. attract so fast and, and sit on it. So the longer the plastic is in the water, the more hazardous it will become. And then when it's eaten by a fish, for example, the one thing those chemicals like more than plastic is fat. And so the chemicals are released from the plastic and they get stored in the fatty tissues. Right, and that's what we eat. Well, and also we're top predators. So a little tiny fish that might have eaten a plankton that's eaten plastic, that fish, supposing that eats 10 of those planktons, and then the next fish up will eat 10 of those fish and already you've got 100 times the chemicals. So the higher it goes up, the more of those chemicals you're getting. And and what was very difficult in the film was it, a, a journalist in particular wanted to say, well, if we eat that, will that happen to us? You can't do that with humans. You can't do tests on humans and feed them hazardous yeah. substances and see if they get cancer or whatever. But we do know that in laboratory animals, those same chemicals have been linked to cancer, autoimmune problems, developmental problems, infertility, endocrine disruption. So if we know that that's happening in other mammals, mm. why do we continue to risk it coming back to us? Now we know and it's we've all got our to stop fault. doing it. It is. We didn't know that. I mean, everybody thought the ocean was huge. Mm. Nobody knew about the way plastic attracts chemicals. Because what I found interesting watching the film, you know, one of the things I found interesting was you w were on a boat out in the ocean. It looks beautiful. Yes. You can't see, like almost, I think my little boy said to me a few years ago, well, I can't see any plastic. Exactly. But it is there, isn't it? Right. And you had little submarines and 
You went down. Did you go in the submarine? Don't talk to me about that. We were supposed to have three days. I was right. first on the list to go. The weather was so bad. We oh, had one day. Yeah. We could do one launch. So you didn't get to do it? I didn't. Nope. Uh, no. You wouldn't that's... catch me doing it. Oh. Very brave. I will oh. go one day. That's the second time I've missed out, actually. I, w- I was going to do another one. We, we, we'd have gone right down uh, on the um, Mir submersibles, the ones that found the, uh, that filmed the Titanic. Oh, gosh. And I was right. supposed to go there and do an 11 hour dive down to the thermal vents, but I was sick. Oh, Joe. So that's yeah. one of your biggest regrets, is it? Not having to do that. It'll happen. <laughs> It'll happen one day. I'll, I'll do that. But yes, no, that was very hard because when I came back to work after I'd recovered, I had to go through all the rushes of somebody else doing that. So that was, uh, yeah, that was a toughie. So, but, I mean, the logistics of work, of creating that film, eight years, huge amounts of money. Yeah. Did you expect it to have the impact that it did? Or did no. you really? Because I would have thought while you're making it, as you say, you're finding other stories and you're thinking, this is, this is huge. Well, it, it's, it's interesting. I, the whole purpose of doing the film originally was to go out to the so-called Great Pacific Garbage Patch. Mm-hmm. Now you look that up, it's, the internet is all over. It talk about plastic in the ocean. It's all about a big, giant floating island of trash, swirling currents, you know twice the size of Texas. These days they're calling it three times the size of Texas or, you know, three times the size of Spain. That's what they talk about. And I had also been told that because you can turn plastic into fuel, yes, that a mothership with a plastic to fuel plant on it was going to be going out there and they'd have a fleet of decommissioned fishing boats that would start collecting the plastic and turning it into oil and fueling themselves. And it sounded just too good to be true. Yeah. But I thought, well, if you're going to get a conservation film, you know, an environmental film, if people are going to be interested, there's got to be some positive outcome. And this just sounded like the most amazing story. So it was, I went out there right at the beginning, 2009, um, managed to get on a scientific vessel that was going out to look at the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. And of course, you don't see it anything. You'll see the occasional pieces of floating plastic, which have obviously come from shipping. But the important things I learned on that trip were that when plastic leaves our shores, so for example, a bottle coming down the river, it takes about 20 years to get from the shore to the center of the ocean. And during that time, because of the sunlight and the wave action and the salt water, it becomes brittle. You know how plastic gets brittle when it's old and then it starts to fragment Mm -hmm. and that's the problem. So by the time it's got to the center, it's getting smaller and smaller and smaller. You don't see it from the surface. The water looks beautiful. And even when you're diving, because we had cylinders out there, so we were sort of diving with a five and a half kilometer depth of beautiful blue water below us, but you don't see it. But we started doing the plankton trawls about 400 miles west of San Francisco. And when the first one came up, I could see these little pieces of plastic in it. And I couldn't believe it. I thought that is so terrible because the water looked such a beautiful blue color. And you could see the sunlight beams going down into it. And then there was this plastic in it. But that was nothing because the closer we got, and it took us two weeks to get to the center, every single net was coming up completely choked with these microplastics. And that, to me, completely changed the film idea that I had Mm. because there was no visual spectacle. And actually, if the media had got hold of it, because they go for a very high-level story, it would have been, there is no plastic. Yeah. But it was a much worse story. It was really insidious. But how do you make that into a film? Because it's nets showing lots and lots of microplastics. And I actually considered the idea of doing a radio program instead and telling this story, you know, the scientific side about the chemicals and everything else. I couldn't think of a way to bring that nets full of microplastics to life. 
So I had to really think about it. And then I thought, well, it, it, the most, you need a charismatic animal to tell this story. And what's more charismatic than a blue whale? You know, the biggest animal that's ever lived on our planet. Oh, and the footage you got eventually, I hear. Oh, that was <laughs> On the last something else. day or yes. something was just incredible. Yeah, well, we had, we had two weeks out there in Sri Lanka. So it, we were about 30 miles offshore. And the whales come in every day and feed on the upwellings from the drop-off from the continental shelf. Right in the shipping channel, interestingly enough. Don't know why they don't move that. But anyway, that's where the whales go. And what we weren't expecting was the unregulated whale watching boats that come all the way out from the land. How they get there, I don't know, because they're little thin, narrow boats Is packed with people. I don't think so. <laughs> and they, there's nobody has read the international guidelines about whale watching. I mean, they see one, they go for it. You know, nothing about keeping the wake really low, going this mm. parallel to the whale, letting it come to you. And that was bad enough. But the Sri Lankan Navy, who have a massive jet-propelled twin-hulled twin -hulled boat, were taking people whale-watching. And they didn't even seem to be bothered about the whale-watching boats. They would just go straight for it. The poor whales are trying to quite take a quick, a quick breath. And then they disappear and come up, you know, a couple of kilometers yeah, away. Wonder. So getting camera crews in the water was not safe. So we got some topside stuff, but what really added insult to injury, particularly from the, the Navy ship, was that they were drinking water out of plastic bottles and just chucking over the side of the boat. No. Now, the, the whales, a blue whale, when it opens its mouth, it takes in a whole load of seawater and then it pushes its tongue up to the roof of the mouth and squeezes the seawater out through its baling plates mm -hmm. and then it will eat the food which would normally be krill and plankton and it can't identify it can't because it's such a huge well it's, it's massive so every time a blue whale opens its mouth it takes in seventy-five thousand liters of seawater so you imagine how much plastic it's taking in and we were seeing them and i just thought how on earth are we going to do this and then three days in the the terrible tsunami happened and I think the whales, this is my hypothesis, I yeah. think they detected the tectonic movement and they headed way offshore. We didn't see them. I'm sure they would have done, wouldn't you? The it does seem to make sense. And, yeah. It does seem to make sense. And we went out every single day and eventually the whale watching boats gave up and I just thought, all that money I've raised for this shoot and it's going to be a disaster. How do I ever tell the sponsors? <sighs> it, but the responsibility, the, the burden was just awful and just hoping we'd get something. Um, and then... It was literally the last day. We'd gone out. We were literally turning back because we had to get back up to Colombo that night for our flight the next morning. Cameras were coming out of the housings. And Lindsay, our biologist, was up on the flybridge and she suddenly yelled, seven whales. So we did seven. a quick about turn, cameras back in, whizzed back. And what was interesting was there was a baby there and the baby was quite inquisitive. It was going around the boat checking us out and it came up. There's a shot that we've got of it coming up in in shot at high speed so it just slowly goes past the camera and the, the cameraman literally had to move backwards to let the whale go so we did get that but that also happened at the same time we had this massive slick of plastic waste because they'd had some flooding and it had all come out so there were huge swathes of plastic all over the surface and when you think about them feeding which is what they'd yeah. gone to that area to do how much of that plastic they, they were swallowing I don't know what I found I mean almost brought me to tears was the seabirds Yes, that was. I mean, that is, and I, I've I've watched you in videos talking to schools, and that yes. seems to be something that the children really pick up on. They do. It, it's it's interesting because if you think about it, it's quite gory, but you don't see any blood. No. So you see it as a, as a very sort of cold dissection, 
But it was interesting when we did that shoot because we'd been filming the birds the night before when they get out of their burrows at night and sort of stretch their wings. And Jen, our, our biologist, had been putting salt water into their stomachs to make them vomit out the plastic. Yes. And she would then give them a meal of squid. Just to they're hungry, aren't they? Yes, exactly. I mean, they're, they're starving, but their stomachs are full uh, with something they can't get nutrients from. So we'd done that the night before. We knew they'd be heading down to the beach during the period we were there. So we went out. And we did get one struggling to go down and it didn't survive. But we picked up 10 birds. And if you look at that scene, you see the other birds lined up beside her. It's horrendous. So when we filmed it, we thought we'd actually, to get all of the cuts that we needed, we thought we'd have to film quite a few dissections. Mm. And in fact, we got all of it on the one go because it was, you know, it was so visual just seeing all I mean, of that if, plastic. If, if you haven't... Anyone listening that hasn't seen this, mm. I mean, how can we describe it? What, what bird was it? It was a shearwater, which so, we do get here. Yeah. So she, she opens the skin first and you see this swollen stomach and she pushes on the side of it and you can see it's got something hard in it. Mm. And then she just starts to open it with the scissors. And it's not gory because you're not seeing blood it's and guns. It is heartbreaking. And then as she pulls the stomach, the sides of it apart, it is absolutely full of compacted plastic as far into that bird as, as you can imagine. And then she picks it out, and there's no added sound effects. The sound of it coming out and putting it on the bench, and all of these pieces fall onto the bench. And it, you, I mean, I don't know how many times I've seen it, and I was there when it happened, yeah. and it still shocks me. And we stayed with her while she opened up all of those other birds, and every single bird was the same. I mean, for her, as her job and her specialism, I mean, it's an incredible job to do, but I, I don't know how she does that every day. I don't either. I really don't. It's, it's, and she, she cares about them so much. She doesn't have mm. children of her own and doesn't want them. She doesn't these need are her, them. These She's are her got babies. enough. Yes. Yeah. And when she, when she does get one that's struggling, the way she talks to it and wraps it up yeah. and, you know, she's, she really, really cares about those animals. She's, she's one of the most passionate biologists I've ever met. And we're talking about hundreds of pieces of plastic in one bird's stomach, weren't we? 270, I yeah. think was the record. So yes. that, I think, for me, is something that stuck in my mind. And I was watching your film the other night on my laptop, and my husband, who pays no interest in what I do for work, he came up behind me and he said, oh, what's this? And he stayed there for the remainder of the film, and he mm. doesn't normally do that. Well, that's good it to hear. Just, it just draws you in, doesn't it? Well, it does. And the thing about it, what what I wanted to do was... Just let everybody realise this is a state we're in. Mm. This is because in the 50s we were told that plastic was disposable. It isn't. We can do all these things and change this. We can get out of this mess. It, it's such a simple thing. It's not something like ocean acidification really does worry me. And I had thought about doing a film about that, but I don't know the way out other than to keep fighting the climate fight that we're already doing. Yeah. But it's not a quick thing you can turn around. This is... Once you've seen that film, it will change you. And so many people have said to me, I changed that day. Yeah. Even seeing the trailer, people have changed. And that's what I wanted it to do. Mm. And the other thing is, a lot of people say, what can we do? What can we do? I've got various solutions. There's lots of things we can do. But to actually get the proper alternatives, the proper marketing, things to deal with the mess that we've made, takes experts. And I thought, if I can get the film out to a whole variety of people then the right people will come forward, the right educators, the right innovators. Uh, there's so much that can be done. Mm. And one of the things I'm very hopeful about is a new process called 
catalytic hydrothermal reaction. I'm glad you said that. (laughs) Cat HTR. The company that's starting the work here is called Renew ELP. And what this does, it's a chemical method of turning plastic into oil. Now, you can turn plastic into oil with a process called pyrolysis, but there's always some emissions. It's still better than letting it rot in landfill or let it go into the ocean. And I think that we need to value plastic. It came from oil, it can go back. And the oil is better quality because the plastic's already been refined twice. And I don't see this as the long-term future because of the whole problem that we've got with the climate change. But while we're still running our ships and our trucks and we might as well these, make use. We may as well use a cleaner oil that's going to put less up into the atmosphere and clean up the mess we've made mm. whilst we're looking at all the alternative energy. Why keep taking it out of the ground? This turns it into the purest kind of oil that you can then use for waxes, waxes and, and naphtha or anything else that you're going to use oil for. And to me, that is the biggest step on getting us out of this mess, stopping any need for fracking or drilling in the Arctic and other mm-hmm. sensitive areas. Why this search for more and more oil when we've got it? We've got it on our beaches. We've got it in our landfills. You know, we loads. could do something with this whilst we're, you know, going down the alternative energy route. Mm. I mean, I think with the horticultural industry, I know the Horticultural Trade Association, they are talking to garden centres mm. and there are things coming and, yeah. uh, and are in place and it seems to be at the fore, which mm. is fantastic. But I worry that some people just think, oh, well, I, that will please my customer if I, don't, if I reduce the plastic. Do, you know, do people really know why we're doing it? So, some do. And... The, if, if the customers are asking for it, they're going to have to change yeah. anyway. I think I, to be honest, I don't care why they do it as long as they yeah, do it. Yeah, but that's, I think, what we need to do is, is as customers, mm. I went to a coffee shop that will remain nameless. I was sitting in and I was given a plastic cup with a plastic lid. Do you think, why? Yes, that, no, that's crazy. You know, I, that is, I that take is mine with me, but absolutely crazy. No, it is. And, and going back to the, the whole, um, the, the business with people doing their gardening and, throwing out pots. There's quite a few garden centres now having pot amnesties so right. that when they're repotting stuff, they're using things that would normally have been put in landfill. There's, there's certainly um, a big one near me in, in Cornwall where they have the pot amnesty. And it and it's, to me, that's the way forward. Why are we buying new ones? And, and also plant pots are the one thing that can be made out of plastic when it's recycled. People seem to think that you can, you know, it's okay to drink out of a plastic bottle because I recycle it. Recycling is not the answer. Plastic, you can't keep recycling it. The best you can do is probably 10, 15 times with a bottle, but eventually it ends up as black plastic that nobody wants. Now they can turn those into things like plant pots. Unlike aluminium, you can, you can recycle it thousands and thousands of times and it never loses quality. That's but recycling is an absolute last resort with mm. plastic. After reduce, refuse, redesign, rethink, replace, all of these others. And then, yeah, recycle somewhere down the bottom mm. rather than chucking it into a river or landfilling it. I, th- I think us gardeners are quite good at reusing. Yes. There's a lot of people using car tires as planters. Yes. And, yes. and I think we're... we're it's character as well, Yeah, isn't it? and I think there's a lot of fun to be had mm. when you're doing that. And it's almost, you know, a mission, right? What can I reuse now? But I think where we've probably gone wrong is... There's an awful lot in garden centres that's plastic. Mm. Do we need plastic seed trays? Could we not have terracotta ones? I know it's well, the an worst expense. are the polystyrene ones because you can do nothing with that. Yes, but no, you don't. But we've we've got into a habit of doing it. We've got to get out of that habit. We've got to look for new ways mm. and think about reusing. I think of all the areas where people can make change. 
the people that already care about the planet and care about plants and the animals that they attract are probably going to be the easiest ones to convince. Yeah. We just need to make it easy for them I because, agree. you know, we, we're so used to using these plant pots. I, I love a terracotta pot. I think they're lovely and they look nicer, you know, yeah. with the sort of the plastic sheen and maybe we do go back to that well, and then we reuse them and reuse them. My uncle has a, a shed full of tiny little terracotta pots and I said to him, "What? where did you get all these? <laughs> And he's in his 70s now. And he said, when I was a boy, when you bought a tomato plant, it came in a terracotta pot. And he's, he's had those for nearly 60 years. Yes. And, and we're still using have, them yes, for absolutely. various things. Well, the plastic would last that long as well, but you well, wouldn't have course. keep it. It's interesting about the, um, the terracotta and, and the clay pots. I don't know if you've travelled in India, but no. when you get the tea carts where you can get the gorgeous chai tea, they've actually made these little cups that are just very, very simple without handles, made from... Play. It looks like terracotta, mm. and you have your tea in that. And when you finish, you just let it smash on the ground. Brilliant. And and it's you know there's there's no chemicals. It's just stone that's going to go back into the ground. Lovely. Yes. Love so that. Th there's there's an awful. I'm not suggesting that we all do that with our with our pots. I'm suggesting we reuse them. But certainly, you know, if you are buying seeds, avoid anything that's polystyrene. I just think there's no excuse for so polystyrene. Polystyrene is the worst. It's the absolute worst. It's the hardest to recycle. Most recycling centres won't take it. The idea particularly of serving hot food in it and hot drinks, mm. it, it, it's the one that transfers the most nasty chemicals into whatever it's carrying. It, it's, it's so prolific in the environment. I mean, right out there in the center of the Pacific, I used to love sitting on the bowsprit. It was my thinking place. But you're always looking for plastic when you're, when you're doing bet. that as well because we were doing surveys. But from so far away, you could see little balls of polystyrene sitting above the surface that had, you know, reflecting in, mm. in the sunlight. There were, I mean, it was just perpetual. You could see these polystyrene balls because they use it a lot in the fishing industry. But there's so many alternatives now. Things for packaging, for example, if you think when you buy a television or pieces of oh, furniture, God, they come in polystyrene. Well, now um, they can use um, mycelium from, from a type of mushroom. grows very fast, grows into the mould, and then it dries, and you can use it exactly the same way that you would use polystyrene. And for small electronics, you can use the egg box type packaging, you know, the, the re recycled cardboard. There's so many things we can do instead. So after you'd made your film, mm. you then became founder of Plastic Oceans. No, I, I founded that 10 Bef years ago. Bef right. So that was before. It was around about the time I decided to do it because I thought it might be easier to raise funds if I set ah, up a charity. I see. But right. the other reason was when I started to learn more and more about the content of the film, particularly the threat to human health, mm. I didn't want the film to just be seen and maybe talked about for a bit and then, you know, on to the next. Forgotten. I wanted the film to have a legacy and the foundation is doing that through our programs in education. We've got some incredible education materials, which teachers can just go onto our website, which is plasticoceans.uk. They go onto that. There's free lesson resources, including clips from the film. They, they, I mean, they, they were done by teachers for teachers. They fit with the curriculum. No, no planning on a Sunday night. Download that, off you go. Bingo. No Absolutely. excuse. Yes, and we've tested them with, with schools and teachers and the feedback has been phenomenal. And is there anything that you, well, what is your plan for that? What's, is there anything in the next few years that you're going to do that's very exciting <laughs> that you can share with us? I am just starting on the development for another film. Wow. Um, which I will not tell you too many details about. Not because until it'll take eight there. years. <laughs> but also, not. people might pick the idea up. Yes. You find somebody else is doing it. But yeah. no, I'm excited about that. 
I want to take this to another level. I feel we kind of lit the fire with plastics. I mean, 10 years ago, nobody was talking about it. I couldn't get green groups to collaborate with us, apart from WWF Netherlands, who held a workshop. And I went to speak at it, but none of the others wanted to. Yeah, it's like, yeah, well, we're cleaning beaches. Well, you can clean beaches forever, but if you don't stop this at source. And I I think it's fantastic that people are cleaning beaches Mm. because it stops those big pieces getting out there. But that can't be all we do. You've got to actually look at it at the other end. Why is it plastics washing up on beaches every day? It's because we think it's disposable. Why do we think it's disposable? It's, it's, it was designed to defy nature. So it, it's, it had to be more than just doing that, but nobody wanted to come on board. I, I took the idea to BBC. They said nobody would be interested in watching a film about plastic. You know, it just wasn't on people's agenda. But now it is. And, and I feel that so many people are now doing wonderful things around this. And it's part of, everybody's remit now you know all of the green groups have now got people working specifically on it which is Mm. wonderful to see and politicians around the world are talking about it and new legislation's coming in i want to start something else not that i'll give up on plastic no i can't see you ever giving up on plastic but do, do you become totally paranoid when you go shopping so what does your shopping trolley look like you know when you you buy because it's almost impossible to go down the supermarket it depends where you are actually if you go to one of the larger supermarkets and do like a weekly shop there's always alternatives you can buy your avocados if you're going to buy an avocado or whatever it is a cauliflower you can buy it loose or mm. you can buy it wrapped in cling film you know the more people that are going to go for the loose ones the less we're going to see of the packaged ones i am careful sometimes you can't avoid it yeah. you know cleaning fluids and things like that we we do have a few refill shops opening now so you can take stuff to those yeah, yeah. um i stopped using plastic bags a long time ago i, I mean even you know in the 80s when i was working uh, when i was in wwf i always took my cloth bag to the supermarket but now and and then if i forgot then i just grab as many bags as i needed mm. But now, because I'm shopping, taking my car, which you can't do again with these corner shops, but if, if you happen to take the car and you've run out, I, I just put loose carrots oh, and so everything else I. in the boot. Bottles of wine rolling around <laughs> yeah, everywhere, exactly. that's fine. And then you go home and you just bring your bags to the car and take it in. There's, al- there's always things you can do. There's certain pet hates I've got, and one is um, the cigarette lighters. Yes. I- I've got a jar of albatross stomach contents, and it's got four of those in that have been fed to oh. these poor birds. Why did we design a lighter? And, and I'm just matches. as guilty. I have lit barbecues with those. Why did we design a plastic lighter that you can't refill? I mean, if we've got to have them, let's refill them. It is crazy that we don't. I've got a Zippo lighter. I love the smell of oh, those. Yeah. Which I'll light a barbecue with now, or I'll, I'll use matches. Um, but those things are just ridiculous. That those are disposable. And razors is, is another one. You know, you get these packs with 10 razors in. You know, we used to put the blade mm. in and, and, and it would last for ages. Or so we've got spoil and lazy. We have. And it's convenience as well. Mm. And, and yes, it, it's going to be inconvenient to go back that way. But look what's at stake. Mm. You know, our life support system is at stake. Our health is at stake. The future of our children and their children. What sort of planet are they going to grow up in if the whole thing looks like the scenes we were filming in Tivoli where people are drowning under plastic and their water is so contaminated? Is that what we want for the future? Isn't it worth spending a little bit more or reusing a few times to stop that happening? It's easy to do. Kids get it straight away. Kids are totally on board with this. They cannot understand that we're continuing to do something when it's doing all that damage. So why can't we take a lesson from them? Well, you're doing incredible things to encourage us. Have you been working with any horticultural groups at all on on 
the subject of reducing plastic? We have. We were part of a garden last year, the Pearl Fisher Garden. We were invited to be like a charity partner at Pearl Fisher, the most amazing organisation. And they built the first ever underwater garden. Oh, right, at Chelsea. At Chelsea. Yeah, it was I fabulous. saw that. Yes, and it had the I pearl diver going in. Yes, Amazing. and all the bottles around the outside, yeah. which signified how many go into the ocean every minute. Yes. And that got a lot of people talking, but also gave us an opportunity to talk to people in the industry. There are some people that are looking at uh, compostable pots. You've got to be careful with the word compostable because people think you can bury it in the garden. Most compostable plastics have to go to an industrial composter okay. because they need 60 degrees and they need oxygen and they don't get that. So it's not something that the home garden No, so there's new ones coming out which will be. But the trouble is we don't have the infrastructure to separate those from other plastics. They look like plastic. If people put them in the plastic recycling, that can contaminate the entire batch because you can't make hard things out of something that will eventually break down because it's made from plant material. So it's like we've, we've got the ideas. We just need to make it work. Very few cities have industrial composters. Bristol does have one, but they don't separate compostable from others here yet. So I don't know how people are supposed to find it or find a way to get their compostables into it. So it's like we, we've got the answers. Um, we, we can make this work. I think people are confused, and I'm one of them. I'm not surprised. We, we've got a green recycling bin at home. Yes. Nowhere does it say exactly what should go no, in and there. And people have been putting tea bags in there. And yeah. We know that tea bags have plastic, plastic in. in. Yes. So I think that is a, a real challenge. And I think as a gardener, when you're doing Q&A panels, yes. people say, oh, can I put this on my compost heap? Mm. So tea bags is is absolutely one. But you can buy silk tea bags now, can't yeah, you? Yeah, different... but the plastic ones, that some of them that look like silk are actually made of plastic. Oh. So you, you, you've got to be careful. I mean, you can always go back to tea leaves. Yes, that would be good. Mm. Strainers, the lovely yes, silver tea strainers. Yes, there's so many gorgeous strainers. things you can get. And gardeners certainly have a lot of tea, so exactly. I think that would, that would be the answer. Pot of tea in the potting shed. Where do you see your future? You strike me as a woman that's never going to give up working. I think there's a lot of us about. And, I'd, and like, I'd like to have the option, but I probably won't. But your passion mm. would, would make you continue. Would it it does, but the other thing is, I think when I became a mum... Oh, a long time ago now, um, you suddenly start to reflect on 30 years beyond your life. You want things to be okay for them. Mm. You know, during the film, I went from zero to four granddaughters. And looking at them, I want it to be so much better for them. But what's fantastic is now that one of my daughters is already working for the Environment Agency in the oh, Plastics um, Division. She was a science teacher, and she was the one that wrote a lot of our materials. In fact, both my daughters were teachers and were helping with that. So... It's, and they were original researchers on the film. So that generation, you know, and, uh, has been able to do so much. But my granddaughters are always involved in, in like pellet surveys and things like that. And one of them just recently was speaking to 500 other school children. Crikey, how old about, is she? She's, she's 10. That's incredible. Very brave girl. Yes, exactly. And, and to see that happening and to know that we can keep working on this together. And, and make a difference together. It, it just means so much. And, and for, you know, every one child that you talk to, they're going to talk to others. They'll talk to mm. their parents. The children, not, not just the ones in my family, but all the children that I've spoken to in schools all around the world give me so much hope mm. because you go in and you can, you can sort of see sometimes there'll be some at the back messing around. Who's this old lady coming to chat to us? But when you start to talk about this and, and, and how important they are as a generation, and then you can show, you know, pictures of submarines and sharks and things like that, mm. it kind of piques the interest. 
but then the topic soaks in and their faces that you get the attention because they suddenly realize this is in their lifetimes and they are the ones that can change it. I mean, look what's happening with the whole climate change from one 16 year old girl. Mm. Children are so, so powerful and you don't have to wait for them to grow up and take positions of responsibility. They can do it right now and they can say things so bluntly that it'll stop you in your tracks. I was um, intrigued that there's a, a video, I think, on YouTube of you talking to a group of school children. Right. And I've done that as a gardener and failed miserably because, <laughs> what? That. well, you, I handed round a pot of seeds and they're all shaking the jar, which yes. is the worst thing to do. Um, but it's very difficult to get the attention of children. And as soon as you started talking, they just, they were, they were hooked. Yes. So I think that is it's it's fantastic. a subject. It it really is. And and also it's quite useful to be able to show a trailer from the film or or you know a, yeah. a little bit of that because it's it it's um it is something that affects us all. That that's the thing. It's something you can see. It's hard to see climate change unless you've lived mm. long enough. It's hard to know that you're making a difference by you know walking or getting a hybrid car instead mm. of a gas guzzler. This is something you can see. This is something you can do something about. This is something that you can even write to your local MP about and get them to discuss it. it. It's something that every single person can help turn around. And what also motivates me is the difference I've seen since the 10 years. Because things have changed. So what, what are the biggest differences you've seen in what we don't use anymore? So sort of cotton buds. And... Cotton buds almost straight away. Plastic bags was down by 90% yeah. following the bag charge. And I don't think that was about people going, I'm not going to spend five pence. I think it's because they thought, yeah, why am I doing this? Yes. It's those sort of things are very easy to grasp. Water fountains are coming back. It's interesting actually because Cornwall, where I live, people are, are very on board with the whole plastics thing. I was at the airport the other day and getting a coffee. I had my own um, reusable coffee cup. Everybody in the queue behind me had their own coffee cups. Everybody in their bags had their still water bottles that they were asking to be filled up at the coffee counter. You then fly out of Heathrow, and I'm queuing in, I don't know, boots or somewhere. Everybody's standing there with two plastic water bottles in their hand. Yeah. And I just want to turn around and shout at them because there are beautiful fountains in Heathrow where you yeah. can get cold filtered water. Just fill it up. Save yourself two or three pounds mm. a go. Why would we do it? It's, it's, you know, it's, it's been made easy for us. But I think children will lead the way. They'll just say, why on earth are you doing that? You know, or refusing it. Can you see the sea from your home in Cornwall? I could if I stood on the roof. Do you ever stand on the roof? <laughs> no, I don't. I haven't tried that yet. I think, uh, I think in the winter, there's one of the bedrooms you could probably just about make it out from. But as the crow flies, I'm about half a mile. Mm. And I think what you said at the beginning of our, our conversation, really, about how much you need to see the sea. I just need to I, feel close I, to I it. I think you're not alone with that. No. I always, when I, I go to Dorset quite a lot and I stand on the beach and you just think, you oh, thank goodness. Yes. It's like ev all the other sort of problems are yeah. behind you. Yeah. We are so connected <clears throat> with it. And, and you, you look at coastal towns, they've all got benches facing the water. And people will just sit there and they just, they don't Mem talk, mesmerized. they don't even look at their phones. Yeah. They will sit and stare at the ocean. It gives back all the time. Mm. And mm. we've just got to stop treating it like a, a trash can or a, a bottomless supply of fish. Mm. Well, I do, I do hope that gardeners listening will have taken all this on board and will I do their best. I, I, I think they will. I think, you know, they're, they are, they are already connected with the earth. Mm. If they understand that the sea is the ultimate casualty, of anything that's coming from the earth. You know, mm. our rivers are the arteries that feed into the sea. 
and the sea is, you know, it's the lungs mm. of the planet. We, we, we can't exist without it. Every bit of water that they put on the garden has come from the sea. Yeah. So, Joe, if people haven't seen this remarkable film, which they absolutely must, while you're off over Christmas, make this your mission, where can they find it now? If you have a Netflix account, it's on Netflix. It's called A Plastic Ocean. It's also on Amazon Prime and it's on iTunes. It's on YouTube. Um, there's also a, a movie website if you want to hire it for um, public screenings, which is aplasticocean.movie. But you can find out lots of information on our website, yes. which is just plasticoceans.uk. Make sure you go to UK because then you'll get all the all, all the, the information, latest. all the science, all the teaching materials, everything else at plasticoceans.uk. I've bought you in a brown paper bag some tulips for when oh, you're next lovely. on the land. Thank so you. I don't know if you're much of a gardener. I don't no, know I'm if you're just you having it. my garden done. It was a square of, of grass, and oh. I've got somebody who's changed it into the most gorgeous um, flower beds and things. It's nearly ready. So, Good. And this is the time to plant, isn't but it? It is. So yep. these are called brown sugar. They're oh, orange oh, and they're oh, gorgeous. So my, my theme is orange and blue. Oh, well, there we are. I couldn't there. be happier. Thank so you so much. So enjoy your tulips and thank you so much for all you do. It's an absolute pleasure. For John. Uh, and <laughs> and thank you for getting the message out to people I would probably not have a chance to talk to. Thank you, Joe. After my conversation with Joe, I'm actually feeling quite exhausted. There's so much to take on board with this subject, but I hope that her knowledge and her enthusiasm and passion will encourage us all to do our bit for the environment. In the next podcast, I meet Toby Buckland, fantastically popular TV presenter, radio star, author, and wonderful gardener. Fresh from the Pod is presented by me, Tamsin Westhorpe, and produced by Candide in their plant-filled Bristol office. Candide is a free plant and gardening app with a helpful community of plant lovers, interesting articles and great tools like plant identification and garden tours. Ask a question in the app with the hashtag FreshFromThePod and I'll choose my favourite to answer later in the series. And if you enjoyed Fresh From The Pod, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, share it on Reddit and talk about it with your friends. And don't forget to subscribe. 